The Gist is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website, portfolio, and online store. For a free trial and 10% off, visit squarespace.com and enter offer code GIST, that's G-I-S-T, at checkout. A better web starts with your website. It's Tuesday, June 17th, 2014. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pasca. Reading about the idea of biomotive triggers, biomotive triggers in packaging design. What are biomotive triggers? Well, it has something to do with neuromarketing. What's neuromarketing? I don't know. I I mean, I'm getting from this article in AdAge that certain shapes elicit certain responses. So a cusp shape, like a shark fin or a horn on a package, that means fear, but a curve represents softness or comfort. You have some quotes from these experts like, Biomotive was about making design more effective. It makes you look at design in a functional way, not just the way it looks. And another guy says, this is about recognizing the emotions you want to trigger and create to make the brand sticky with consumers. All right, this sounds pretty highfalutin, a little space-aged, if we used to use that phrase. So what's the product? What are they talking about? They're talking about how all of this biomotive stuff, it all comes down to redesigning the package of duck Greshingham Foods makes some prepackaged duck and it wasn't selling well. And then they redesigned the label on the duck so that Greshingham is now curved instead of a square label. And guess what? The brand was in decline. It rose 47% in sales in mid-2012 after the design was changed. So it rose in sales, declining brand, just because it has a curved logo. There was another quote in this. Uh, This guy who is the marketing director of Greshingham Foods says, our brief was quite specific. Disrupt the category. Now, putting aside the fact that that was perhaps the least specific charge I've ever heard, just go disrupt the category. I was thinking about this concept of disruption. I'm not just stumbling along in the intro. I'm disrupting the idea of podcast intros. You're not so rude to me. I'm disrupting the idea of politeness. I was reading an article in New York Magazine by Jessica Pressler, who's writing about a company that wants to disrupt laundry, and they just got a new office. Spitting distance from shaving industry disruptor Dollar Shave Club, dating site disruptor Tinder, and Zuckerberg disruptor Snapchat. And so we will be talking to Jessica Pressler in a laundromat about this laundry disruption company. And we're also, of course, going to end with the spiel. But up first, truancy, finding parents whose kids don't go to school. Why is that even done anymore? Last week, a Pennsylvania mother of seven died in a jail cell. Her crime was that her children were absent from school. She had received a two-day sentence. This sentence would have taken off of her shoulders a number of fines that she accumulated over the years because she couldn't get her seven children to go to school. This caused a lot of soul-searching about the punishment itself, but few in the district in Berks County seem to even look at the underlying logic of the law. Why do we find the parents of truant children? This seems to me something that harkens back to, I don't know, the 1930s. So to talk about this, we're joined by Dean Hill Rifkin, College of Law Distinguished Professor at the University of Tennessee. Hello, Mr. Rifkin. Hi. Now we should say you're not the dean of the school. Your name's Dean Rifkin. Correct. Am I right? Are truancy laws a relic of a time long ago? I think so. There is 
two narratives that drive truancy laws in this country. The narrative that is failing is the punitive narrative, and that is by punishing uh, parents, by punishing students in many jurisdictions, somehow or another that uh, is going to return students to school, uh, stabilize them, and make sure that they, uh, they make progress. There is no evidence that the punitive approach to uh, truancy is, is working. Instead, as many jurisdictions are beginning to see, many school systems, the only real um, hope for returning students to school, students who have been chronically absent, uh, is to provide those students with extremely intensive uh, services uh, and supports and alternatives so that they indeed can make progress. The court system has no capacity for providing students with those needed services. All it can do and all it has done in many states is to punish. And that's the children themselves, and I want to get to that in a second. But then you have that extra layer of punishing the parent Yeah, uh, with a fine. And I'm going to guess... Who would be less able to pay a fine than the sort of parent who, not to speak too broadly, but with so many children and can't get her children to go to school? And it just seems that, I don't know, maybe you've studied that issue too, but that would seem to be doubly ill-considered. Truancy courts are poor people's courts in this country. You don't see middle class. You don't see um, you know, rich folks uh, whose children are, are brought to truancy court because they provide alternatives, they provide treatment, they provide the kind of supports and services that I mentioned before. This particular woman who died undoubtedly had to go back to court time and time and time again in a recursive set of hearing after hearing after hearing. Um, And this is counterproductive to what the goal of presumably, of truancy laws are, and that is to get kids back to school. Has there been any or many studies done comparing fines in the punitive way of doing it versus alternative methods? I've been researching this area now for about five years, and I haven't seen a longitudinal, or I haven't seen any studies. Now, that's shocking. Uh, Why do you think that that is? It's hard to tell. First of all, the juvenile courts are not equipped to do the studies. They have enough trouble funding their own operations in most parts of the country. You would think that district attorneys would try to look at whether their actions are effective in prosecuting parents. Academics are beginning to get more involved in these issues The and public policy organizations. The Vera Institute of Justice in New York mm-hmm. has recently created a status offense resource center funded by the MacArthur Foundation that... Uh, hopes to provide data and evidence to school districts and others who are involved in this process uh, to show what the most effective approach is. And and I can uh, virtually guarantee you that it's not punishing parents and fining parents that is going to lead to the goals that everybody seems to share in, in this uh, in this arena. Dean Hill Rifkin is at the University of Tennessee College of Law, where he's a distinguished professor of law, and he has uh, thought and written about the problem of truancy fines in our legal system. Thank you very much, Mr. Rifkin. Thank you very much. 
This episode is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website, portfolio, and online store. For a free trial and 10% off, visit squarespace.com gist and enter offer code gist at checkout. So let me tell you a little bit about Squarespace. Simple, easy, beautiful design. The way they ask you to design your web space is to drag and drop things when you're building the website. They offer 24-7 support through live chat and through email. The support is based in the cities of New York, Dublin, and Portland. So those are interesting people that perhaps on chat, after you get done with talking about your website, maybe you can ask them a question about what bands are playing in their town. Unless you're from Dublin, and you get a guy from Portland, and then your mind just might be blown. Plans start at $8 a month and includes a free domain name if you sign up for a year. So start with a trial. No credit card is required. You can start building your website today. And remember, when you go and sign up for Squarespace, make sure to use offer code GIST to get 10% off your first purchase. It also shows support for the GIST. They, of course, monitor how many people write GIST. And the more that write GIST and get that GIST code, the more Squarespace likes us, the more we like Squarespace, the more we can keep doing the show and saying things like Squarespace. A better web starts with your website. Let's like demolish laundry. It's too good a quote not to use and uses the title of an article on how Silicon Valley is trying to wash your clothes better, faster, and cooler with an Uber-type app. Jessica Pressler wrote the article for New York Magazine, so we came to a laundromat here in lower Manhattan. I'm surrounded by dryers and washing machines, and the Steve Harvey show is playing. You might hear that in the background. About six people are doing their laundry, just sitting there, some of them using smartphones. You would figure if there was an Uber-type app to do their laundry, that would save them time, money, and effort. So while we were here, we ran into a clothes washer, Natalia Padolino. So what was that vinegar trick you did? So I've been looking at natural soaps and trying to clean with them. And so I bought every product out there to clean my sports wash and my delicates. And to, you know, to get rid of like the smell that absorbs. And apparently vinegar, you know, gets like makes your clothes brighter and gets rid of all the smell. So I've been using vinegar in all my loads now and it's awesome. Could I just say that the idea of the term sports wash may have changed my life. <laughs> I didn't know of a good way to refer to that dirty gym stuff. <laughs> my sports wash. Yeah, sports wash. So we're doing a story. We're interviewing the author of a New York Magazine article about these apps, these laundry apps. You kind of roll your eyes. You ever think, why do you do your own laundry? Um, well, I'm really, I'm really peculiar with my delicates. I guess hence the vinegar. Yeah. And so even this one, you have to watch out. Some machines actually, even though you put cold, they actually wash it with hot. Yeah. So if you wash wool, they'll shrink anyway. So you, I'm very you, peculiar with my laundry. So you wouldn't use an app because you wouldn't trust them. Like that's why you don't do drop off with laundry here. Is that right? Well, what kind of apps? Are you well, you know, like an Uber for car. Yeah. What if there was one for laundry? There is. There's like seven, but they haven't really taken off for some reason. Yeah, I mean, if there was someone I could trust, I would love for someone else to do my laundry. <laughs> Natalia was there doing one load of sports wash in a small machine at Grove Street that cost three seventy-five. Withdrawing her visit will cost her $4.75. With Washio, now located in L.A., San Francisco, and D.C., the cost would be about $20, including delivery fee, for about 10 pounds of laundry. But Natalia said it wasn't the cost keeping her from sending out the laundry. It was trust. 
We told the author of the article, Jessica Pressler, about Natalia's hesitation to use a laundry app. Jessica said she'd heard those concerns before. All of the guys that I talked to, and I talked to multiple laundry apps, and they stress customer service in a big way because a lot of this was born out of the frustration of having the dry cleaner ruin something, a guy not folding your socks the right way. And they really pay a lot of attention to that. You know, like I had a whole conversation with somebody about like, you know, Mary likes her socks in balls and like, you know, (laughs) so-and-so likes them another way. And they do pay attention to that. That's definitely a part of it. At what point did everyone in American society become a Roman emperor? (laughs) <laughs> I really don't know how to answer that. I, I mean, like my socks in balls or I will behead the servant oh that God. does not... Oh, my God. It's the Cersei Lannister economy. So, Jessica, you did a profile of these guys who want to, as we, as it says in the title, what? Destroy laundry as we know it? Disrupt. Dump- disrupt the laundry industry. Oh, crush the laundry industry is, I believe, the quote that you're referring to. Right, so these guys are like, give me an, a sense of who they are. They're like laundry bros. Yeah, they're, they're very nice guys. They uh, went to Argentina after college and opened up a burrito chain. Not just one burrito spot, but like a whole restaurant chain. Um, which is kind of impressive for 20-something-year-old guys. I mean, I would have just drank caparinas myself. <laughs> I think I did. And so they open up these, you know, whatever, 14 burrito stores, but they come here and they're like, oh, my God, we've been missing out on everything. The world of apps, the world of everything on demand. Right. Well, as you recall, I mean, the past three years we've been here, so it's been kind of a slow boil for us. But if you were away and you came back, you'd be like, whoa, the world has completely changed in the past three years. So they saw, like, a different world than the one that they left and they wanted in on it. What would their elevator pitch be for what their app and what their service provides? Their elevator pitch is that it's kind of a seamless experience that you can just press a button and a ninja will appear to take your laundry away. They will wash it for you, they will dry clean it for you, and they will return it to you with a cookie. And it was a warm cookie in the beginning, but I think that was too ambitious, and now it's just a cookie. Yeah, and then the cookies got a little controversial. And then the cookies got a little bit controversial because, you know, it's California and not a lot of people are into the cookie-eating situation. But the people in Washington apparently love the cookies. Yeah, that makes sense. (laughs) All right, so look, they're successful. They're successful enough. They have a track record of 14 burrito stores in Argentina, which seems like a euphemism for something. But... (laughs) At times, did you say, this is plausible, or mostly did you say, this is far-fetched? You know, what impression did you get about the viability of this business plan? Oh, it's totally viable. I mean, when I was there, I mean, when I'm in any situation, I definitely think that the person is totally sane and everything that they're doing is normal and it makes a lot of sense and I'm like yeah this is a good idea and then I get home sometimes and I'm like wait a minute this is kind of nuts and it was a little bit of that like the big picture is that it's a little bit crazy but in reality a lot of people I told about this were like oh are they coming to my area and as you convey in your article you know the reader gets the impression oh this is ridiculous oh this is ridiculous and then I said this is ridiculous but it's totally in keeping with capitalism like it's yeah Yeah, I think we as a people are ridiculous at this moment in time it's not specifically Washio or any of the laundry startups it's just us and our level of entitlement that is just growing more than one person has pointed out that what the internet is really good at is solving the problems of the people who create apps on the internet. Yeah. You know, 20, 25-year-old guys get their problems solved because those are the people who are driving the tech industry. Yeah, I think that was in The New Yorker, and that's totally true. And that's who has the money and, and needs has the problems. Problems in air quotes again. <laughs> so what does your article say about the way we live now? <laughs> um, 
I think it says that we're moneyed and lazy. And that's, that's basically it. Okay, but this gets back. Like, what is capitalism? Like, you could argue the same about farming, and you could argue, as is your article. I mean, there's always been innovations. The scrub board and then the washing machine. Like, why is this the line of demarcation where now past doing your own laundry or dropping it off, now that's the lazy line? Yeah, I mean, I just think it's, like, kind of this, like, ever-growing... I think I mentioned the hedonic treadmill where you just get used to privileges um, and you keep upping the ante and more and more and and now we won't want to do our laundry and then you know it's going to be too annoying to have them come to your house and you're going to have like a special locker i don't know there's going to be like some other innovation eventually so is there something about the app the luashio app that allows us to essentially air our dirtier laundry maybe if we're bringing our laundry to an actual place and people see us connected to the laundry we're not going to bring the I don't know, crustiest and bloodiest among us. <laughs> <laughs> Crust- yeah, no, I would think that it would be like when the cleaning lady comes and you clean up for the cleaning lady. I think I would think that you do a little pre-clean on your laundry and maybe that would become, you know, an onerous chore eventually. Although, and you could give this idea to the Washio guys if you're still in touch, that could be like Washio elite level. Where the no questions asked laundry. <laughs> you know, you have to buy in and you get a Washio black card. That's a I service that, they can I provide. I think that sounds like a winning app idea and you should yeah. go into business. So what do you think their chances are? I mean, um, what's his name? Uh, Ash- Ashton Kutcher plugged him on Jimmy Kimmel. Yeah. Oh, my God. And actually, since the article came out, they received a lot more funding. I think they have $10 million in funding right now. Um, which is kind of amazing. So, I mean, I think that there's a lot of, they have a lot of backers. They have a lot of really important vocal backers. Um, Ashton is one of them, like Justin Bieber's manager. Nas is an investor. Like, <laughs> it's kind of like the who's who of, of the most prominent tech world investors in a lot of ways. So I think that they have some, they have a good chance. Jessica Pressler wrote the story of Washio for New York Mag. We spoke at Grove Street Laundry here in the West Village after our chat. The owner told us she was considering an app herself to help coordinate their drop-off laundry service. And now, the spiel. The undeniable proof that the Iraq War was an utter disaster. The undeniable proof that the Iraq War was an utter disaster. And, and it's on Vox. Okay, I'll click. It's written by Ezra Klein himself. Smart dude. Clever guy. Looks pretty short. Not that I need much convincing that, you know, the Iraq War was a disaster. I have followed the news, but okay, here we go. The news that the U.S. and Iran might cooperate to save Iraq's government is a measure of just how badly the Iraq War failed to achieve its aims. All right, okay. One. News that it might cooperate isn't news that they are cooperating. And I don't think cooperation between Iran and the U.S. would mean disaster. Cooperation, in fact, may be good, the enemy of my enemy and all that. Plus, historically, the U.S. and Iran did cooperate in targeting the Taliban in Afghanistan. Remember, Taliban and ISIS are Sunni, Iran is Shia. So you'll have to get better with some undeniable proof. Here the article, a little bit of history. Stockpile of illegal weapons, liberal democratic counterweight to radical Islam, right, right, right. Democratic domino theory. All right, so here, here, here the article goes. The totality of the Bush administration's failure in Iraq is stunning. It's not simply that they failed to build the liberal democracy they wanted. It's that they ended up strengthening the very forces, factions, and states that they feared. It's a terrorist organization now controls a territory about the size of Belgium. Wait, I got to stop. 
Is that is that big or small, the size of Belgium? Is that supposed to resonate? I don't know. Let's read on. It raised the possibility that America's invasion and occupation trained the fighters, created a vacuum that will lead to al-Qaeda's successor organization. All right. So, I agree. Things are bad in Iraq. We talked about it a lot on the show. This article in no way offers undeniable proof that Iraq was an utter disaster. And by the way, this concept of undeniable proof, proof means to demonstrate something is true. Deniable, undeniable, proof is kind of tied up with undeniability anyway. What the article does illustrate is a headline that overpromises and underdelivers. Utterly overpromises and catastrophically underdelivers. No, actually, it wasn't that bad. It was, you know, a 475-word blog post. It was half a David Brooks column. I do feel a little burned by the packaging, and that's what I was thinking of when I clicked on today an article on The Daily Dot. It was by Matt Saccaro. It starts, digital publications have become so obsessed with creating content worth sharing, they've forgotten about writing stories that are worth reading. And then they list seven relatively recent blog posts. One of them is a Slate blog post, the 25 distinct reasons people favorite things on Twitter. Other stupid blog posts, according to this article in Daily Dot, cats and dogs dressed as people 100 years ago, 29 times community was the funniest show on TV. I do have to defend my colleague, Will Aramis, about that, things that people favorite on Twitter. His article was good. His article made fun of the original study, pointed out that, what, it's not 24, it's not 26, and pointed out other problems with uh, their methodology. But fine, putting that aside, yeah, of course, there's a lot of stupid stuff on the internet, but there's a lot of great stuff. Today, I researched Botswana's economic and cultural accomplishments just tease. I found out everything about Botswana on the internet. I also found out about the lifestyles of Roman emperors. Another just tease. On the internet, I found or I read a column by Boris Johnson, the mayor of London. Clever Tory. He he was criticizing how Tony Blair keeps defending his decision to invade Iraq. And there was a sentence that says, as an attempt to rewrite history, this is frankly a medic. A medic. It means meant to induce vomiting. I looked that up on the internet. The internet is great, but a strain of recently popular prose trends on the internet, that's not great. So here's a quote from an Upworthy story today. Here's the thing. Morgan Freeman is totally entitled to his opinion, even though I don't agree with him. Upworthy. Man, am I glad I used the internet to research a medic today. So yeah, some of what Sakara writes in the Daily Dot is true. That clickbait, sharebait, that drives traffic, that's not a great trend. But you know what? The overall complaint that, quote, the internet media world is a maelstrom of homogeneity, that is just not true. Yesterday, this show, the gist's headline was, should Ruth Bader Ginsburg quit already? I'm going to say it was a defensible headline. It wasn't exactly the question we asked, but it was a fairly arresting way to frame the question that we did ask to draw readers and listeners to a good discussion of the issue. And you know what? That question did get answered. I like that framing of the question a little better than this headline. And by the way, when I was looking for a boring headline, here was my process. I looked to the left. I glanced slightly, and there was Sunday's Washington Post, and on the front page were these words, political terrain shifting for GOP. Issues, coalitions, create fissures that present challenges beyond 2014. Oh, my God. So, yeah, I'll I'll cop to it. False choice between boring headlines and fake tawdry headlines. But there's a decent middle ground. 
And the other thing is that misleading headlines or, you know, all those links to the formula of X number of reasons that Y is the best, they're not the death knell of the internet. They're not the death knell of journalism. They're just a habit, a temporary habit. They're idioms that get used as the media has always used idioms, and then they fall out of disfavor. 60 Minutes used to use extreme close-ups to convey dishonesty, and then everyone started doing it, and now it's a cliche. They don't do it anymore. Newspapers used to consciously try to lead us into war. The New York Post still does, but that's fallen out of favor too. Tactics change. The new Onion site, the Clickhole, I believe, will shame the worst tendencies of virality on the internet. People will say, man, that's a Clickhole story at places like BuzzFeed. They probably already are. Underneath this annoying layer of X number of reasons that why cats are cute is a worldwide web, if you will. But saying that the internet or clickbait or shareable content is destroying journalism. I see it as another in a long line of hand-wringing and complaints about how the world is disintegrating around us and will never recover the depth, seriousness, or importance of the time that came before. And in fact, the complaint as framed by this Daily Dot article is a little bit of pandering. It's pandering to the like-minded who nod their head and say, yeah, I hate all those kinds of articles. Or maybe... It's just a delivery system for the link that appeared right under the article itself. It said, more from the Daily Dot. These guys want you to dress your derriere in 8-bit undies. Click. And that is it. Andrea Salenzi is producer of Slate Podcasts, where she spends most of her day forcing couples who've never met before to kiss for the first time. My favorite of the 12 reasons why Game of Thrones is just like high school is that Andy Bowers is executive producer of Slate Podcasts. You could subscribe in iTunes and give us a review. Let me read the latest review. It's by M. Shapiro. Because iTunes keeps records, I can accurately report that I have listened to more than a thousand episodes of a variety of podcasts. And this is the best of those podcasts. The gist, meaning the gist is the best of those podcasts by a country mile or a suburban mile. Wait a minute. iTunes keeps reports on what you've listened to. Can I get one of those reports? Would I be ashamed? You can listen to the gist in TuneIn or SoundCloud, where the Slate Daily podcast will send you an email when the podcast posts. Go to slate.com slash gist email to sign up for that. Email us at thegist at slate.com. This plate of goulash was blasted with pepsin in the stomach, had its nutrients absorbed into the small intestine, and then passed into the large intestine. You won't believe what happens next. Thanks for listening.